Hey, it's Mark. Over the past few months, we've featured conversations with healthcare leaders about the tenets of diversity, equity, and inclusion. These interviews have highlighted the biopharma industry's blind spots related to health inequities and what big drug makers, as well as marketing agencies, have been doing to remedy these longstanding institutional flaws. Still, when it comes to integrating DEI principles into patient communications, challenges remain. Some populations, scarred by mistrust of traditional healthcare players like pharma companies, physicians, and health systems, require a different understanding and approach to disseminate useful information. For one, marketers have to recognize the importance of personal networks of trusted sources. The Black community leverages these social circles as a conduit for credible health information when considering big healthcare decisions. That's according to a new report titled Chosen Circles, How Black Americans Navigate Health Decision-Making, which analyzes how organizations and brands can more effectively convey health information to underserved and underrepresented communities. The agency behind that report is M. Booth Health, and for this week's episode, my colleague Jack O'Brien spoke with two executives from the firm, Taylor Mahmoud and Mark Westall. They'll review some of the study's eye-opening statistics, as well as how health marketers can create more meaningful dialogue with Black American health consumers. And Lesh is back with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. This week, Eli Lilly unveiled promising results on yet another potential weight loss drug. And some lawmakers and pharma companies are aiming to get Medicare to cover this increasingly popular class of medication for obesity. Plus, Bernie Sanders continues his drug pricing regulation push. And Jack, where did we land on this week's healthcare social media carousel? So we've got three stories this week, the first being Andy Cohen joking that The Real Housewives of Ozempic is already airing. Aaron Rodgers talks about taking ayahuasca at a psychedelics conference. And the study finds that doctors followed by nurses are the most popular professions on TikTok. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. and welcome to the MM&M podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MM&M. Pleased to be joined today by two guests from M Booth Health. We have Taylor Mahmood, who's the EVP of Health Equity and Multicultural Strategy, and Mark Westall, who is the SVP of Strategy and Insight. Taylor, Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Taylor, I wanted to start our conversation off here. Um, obviously, M Booth Health just released the Chosen Circles report. And I wanted to really kind of get an understanding about a high-level overview of the report and some of the key findings for our audience, if you want to start there. Sure. Um, Thanks for uh, delving into this topic. We've taken a commitment to uh, health equity and multicultural strategy, and we started digging through the research that exists. And certainly, we believe health inequities are a serious threat to public health. And there's a lot of research on multiple factors that contribute to health inequities. But one that we found that's overlooked is relevant health information. So we decided to conduct a proprietary study uh, to really look into um, understanding how Americans are navigating health decision making and more importantly, what brands and organizations need to do to more effectively reach and empower American consumers. And what stood out to us was the data among black Americans. And in this study, uh, we uncovered that black Americans are creating personal networks of trusted sources to build confidence um, in the face of 
information overload, mistrust, and all the dynamics in the healthcare system. And we're calling them chosen circles. So that's what uh, pegged the name. And more specifically within that research, we're finding that over 60% of Black Americans are creating these chosen circles. And really it's out of the need to have greater confidence, relatability, and representation in health information so it's relevant to them. Uh, Mark, is there anything you wanted to hop in on that point, kind of um, adding maybe any sort of statistics that stood out to you from the report as you were gathering and analyzing the information? Yeah, so, um, you know, Taylor alluded to, obviously, uh, there's been a ton of attention um, long overdue around the inequities that are facing Black Americans in the healthcare system today. And the net impact of that on many of these individuals that we spoke to in our survey is that they feel an inherent lack of confidence and distrust in that system. And so that's why they're creating these chosen circles. And we actually unpacked that and asked them, what are you looking for um, in uh, the individuals or sources that you want to include in these chosen circles? They really hit on those things that Taylor mentioned around confidence, representation, relatability. So 57% of Black Americans said that they're curating multiple sources of health information to make them feel more confident rather than relying on, as we saw later on in the study, HCPs that they perhaps don't trust or have felt let down by. So that's a major, major motive. It really is about building that confidence in the face of a system that has has ultimately let them down. Um, And then beyond that, once they've built that confidence, what else are they looking for in terms of the individuals or or sources that they're, they're including in these chosen circles? They're looking for shared experiences. What are relatable stories around health issues that um, uh, they can personally relate to. Um, and that was one of the top reasons. You know, a half of the Black Americans that we spoke to said that that was a main motive for creating these chosen circles. And they listed similar reasons to this too. They're looking for people like me um, who share the same identity components as they do. And that goes far beyond just race. It's about uh, looking for individuals who share the same gender identity, sexual identity, and orientation, um, and understanding from those sources what was your experience in dealing with a certain health issue that I can relate to? And they feel, I think, that that isn't something that they're maybe getting from more traditional sources. So these are some of the, the big, big motivations behind why we're seeing these chosen circles become more and more prominent. It, it's interesting to hear you both talk about kind of these. And I know that we've reported on this in the past about the mistrust among black Americans when it comes to healthcare institutions and and medicine in this country. I am really kind of curious, and maybe Mark, you want to tackle this one first, and Taylor, you can hop in. In terms of the audience that we have of the medical markers that represent some of these pharma and biotech brands, they're always looking for, okay, we're we're aware of the situation. We know that there are shortcomings. What do we do to rectify that? How do we build back the trust with these communities that may have, you know, their doubts or their questions is given, you know, very justifiable history on that front. So it's a great question. And I think it's interesting you bring out potential brands and organizations that might be listening to this is because we did explore and ask um, this audience directly around how they're interacting with government organizations in the health sphere and pharmaceutical companies too. And it was interesting what we found because attention emerged. 65% of black Americans say that they uh, recognize that government health organizations are an important source of health information, but only 19% said they'd actually used a government health agency website to learn about health. And on the pharmaceutical company side, 
more than half, 53%, again, said that pharmaceutical companies are an important source of health information, but only 13% said they were actually going to them uh, for that health information. Um, and we have further unpacked that to, to explore, okay, what are some of the reasons why? You mentioned there, Jack, that um, a lot of these organizations are aware that, you know, that uh, black Americans maybe feel a sense of distrust and a negative sentiment towards those brands. But we actually asked why. And the top reasons were, were these. So more than one in three for each of these data points, uh, black Americans say they don't feel represented in the health information that they are seeing from those government health organizations or from those pharmaceutical brands. Or the second one was they do not think health organizations care about people with their background. Um, and the net impact of that is therefore they don't trust the health information that they're receiving. So in short, it's they don't see people that feel like them, that look like them, that represent their background, their health issues in the materials that government health organizations and uh, pharmaceutical brands are putting out, and therefore they don't trust it. And so that in and of itself, that representation piece is a big, big driving factor. One of the things that was really important for us when we conducted this research was not just to reiterate the problem or regurgitate what's already out there, but to your point, to actually look for some tangible solutions. And uh, I, I want to just make sure that um, I don't try to represent the voice of the research participants because we actually asked them um, what they believe uh uh, health marketers and brands should do um, in terms of more effectively reaching people with truly relevant and valuable health information. And I want to tell you what they said before I offer our perspective on, on what needs to be done. Um, they said that they expect government uh, organizations and pharma to deliver information that's trustworthy, that's accurate, that's easier to understand, and that's more inclusive. So they have higher expectations of industry than they do of you know their cousin down the street or a member that's a member of their chosen circle that's not um, you know an accredited source. Um, certainly, they want to hear from people like them. Um, they don't want to just hear from experts. So I, I, they want to receive information from people with influence that are part of the community. And they also uh, want um, government and pharma to meet them where they are. So don't expect them to go to your website and find information and take action. Uh, but to you know, they want information truly delivered to where they're already consuming info. Um, social media, podcasts, even messaging apps. Um, and also one thing that stood out to us is that in-person communication really builds trust and authenticity. And that that came through to the forefront. And what I'm seeing in all of those answers is a certain level of humanity, right? Engage with me as a person, be mindful that I'm an individual, I'm not part of a broader group. And so that came through uh, really um, clearly. Um, and then, you know, broader, when we started looking at all of the the input that we were receiving, um, we, we truly believe that um, as marketers and brands communicate and engage with Black communities, we really need to be thinking of um, inclusion as an input, multicultural as an input. All of this is not an output of work. You don't create and create information and then just change the person 
on the on the um, on the ad or on the communications. You really have to start from the beginning with an inclusive approach to research, to insights, having voices at the table. So some of that um, foundational integration of inclusive of multicultural perspective um, and audiences at the table is critical to all the work that we're doing. It's very interesting to hear you talk about that too, Taylor, in terms of maybe some of the experiences I think a lot of the brands certainly um, recognized during the COVID pandemic and saw these racial health disparities. And now as we've, you know, just this week seen the um, public health emergency come to an end, it's really saying, okay, so now what are you going to do? How are you going to be able to actually turn these into tangible solutions? To your point, it's not you know, mm-hmm. just simply an output of just kind of changing around the deck chairs. It's really something deeper that takes a long time. And I imagine a lot of investment of resources and time to actually make that come to fruition. Well, and I would say a change in process and perspective, right? So it, it's 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 changing the way that we fundamentally build strategies mm-hmm. so that we are not putting out something that speaks to a group. So a need for tailored strategies, a need to respect the individuals, a need for community engagement that's authentic. So I think it's a shift in how we work and also an acknowledgement that um, multicultural marketing is mainstream because our audience is mainstream now. Yeah, I would just add on to that, that I think there is a seismic shift that needs to take place for maybe how brands are considering how they're messaging to black Americans when it comes to healthcare information. I think there's an innate desire and tendency to uh, have direct to consumer messaging that pushes uh, certain messages out or pushes certain creative ideas to these audiences. Um, When in reality, what they're doing is creating these chosen circles, which by the way, and made up of friends, family, members of the community, online influencers, um, even therapists were among the top individuals that black Americans are referring to for health information. And so for the brands that you're talking about, Jack, it's about how do we actually uh, connect to the individuals that are in their circle, not just directly communicating to them as individuals. So it's can we get that credible information um, to the friends and family that are maybe leaders within that chosen circle or working with online influencers that are seen as trusted sources and getting them the right information so that we can, for want of a better term, like infiltrate that circle in a meaningful and truly helpful way. So I think it's about healthcare brands kind of reconsidering when reaching Black Americans, not thinking directly, let, not thinking first of all, Let's see how we can reach these these audiences en masse as individuals, but rethinking who are the most important individuals in the chosen circles of black Americans typically, and how do we reach them so that our messages and our information is getting out um, in a way that's actually um, breaking through. I wanted to follow up and ask um, when it relates to that outreach, you know, you've talked about kind of identifying these key statistics in terms of what black Americans are expecting from healthcare organizations, how they're consuming their healthcare information. And, you know, you've detailed some of these solutions. I'm curious from your own assessment, whether or not brands at this point in time are living up to that promise or taking advantage of these opportunities, or is there room for improvement? Is there a, Hey, you know, here's the information that's really key, but you have to act on it. You have to actually put it into action. I mean, I think there's certainly room for improvement. Um, it, and, we're, you know, many, many organizations are making strides, but I think there's certainly room for improvement. Um, and 
the areas just kind of taking a step back, the room for improvement is really on the input side. So it's not necessary, you know, it, it is only true that inclusive information can be created with inclusive inputs. So I think we have to really think about a creating information that's going back to the study results, creating information with perspectives of historically excluded and underrepresented communities at the table with, you know, certainly authentic stories, helping with that understanding, considering social uh, determinants and uh, systemic barriers when we're devising approaches so that we can make sure that it's relevant. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think it has to start there. Um, And then certainly as we look at, to to Mark's point, um, that will help us tailor strategies, but then being really mindful of uh, who are the right trusted and authentic messengers to carry the information that already have trust um, that that our audience is already turning to for advice and information and really activating um, those messengers as ones who will enact change and not just looking within our four walls for delivery of, of health information. Yeah, I, I would just add on um, to answer your original question, Jack, on perhaps what brands maybe could do better or or what is being done well um, currently, I would say that the intention is absolutely there. And I think there is what's been refreshing over the last few years is how uh, health equity has risen to the forefront, and that's important. And I think there has been a rush for brands to show that they too are committed to helping um, drive more equitable uh, access and, and care across minority audiences, but sometimes in that rush, you can skip the step that Taylor is talking about, um, where, you know, before you get to an idea and an output and a strategy for how to reach those audiences, have you got the people in the room that are truly going to tell you how you can reach them in an authentic and engaging way? We very intentionally, for example, in commissioning this very study, worked with Sprout Insight, who are a female-owned and minority-owned research firm, because we knew we had to get the perspectives of individuals who had expertise and innate knowledge of that community and and, and how to truly understand um, and explore those needs. And it's a case of taking that approach and applying it to everything you're doing in your communication strategies. Are there people in the room that are going to be able to speak to what this audience truly needs? Um, If there isn't, what can we do to make sure that those voices are heard and are being carried through as we develop communication strategies and and creative ideas. And I think that is a step that, as I say, in this rush to show a commitment can also often be skipped. And when you skip that step, you don't come across as authentic. And um, your audiences that you're trying to reach know that. Um, And that can be where it all kind of falls away again. So um, can't emphasize the importance of, of, as Taylor really alludes to, being inclusive in the entire process of, of building our strategy, most importantly, at the very, very beginning. It's very interesting to hear you both talk about just how key that is, where it's not just it's not just something at the end where it's like, okay, this is how we switch it around. It really has to be kind of a revision of the process as it's been, you know, truly from the ground up. And I know that a lot of uh, leaders who probably listen to this podcast are saying like, you know, that's something that we have to really commit to. But if you want to have those results and reach these communities and, and be able to have your messages heard and, 
and uh, received. That's that's how the process goes. So I, I really want to to kind of cap off the conversation here. Obviously, you've thrown a lot of different statistics and findings from the report that I think are meaningful for our audience. I'm curious, and Taylor, maybe if you wanted to start us off here, if there were any sort of, you know, maybe surprising findings or things that stood out to you that, you know, we haven't discussed here that you think would be meaningful for our audience to know. One of the things that was most uh, surprising to me is the concept of one in five Black Americans say they've gotten sick in the last 12 to 18 months because they didn't have access to health information that they needed, that they felt relevant to them. And so I think oftentimes as we think about the breadth of health information that exists, we think there's so much out there, but if it's not relevant to a person or accessible to a person, this is the stakes are high and people are getting sick because it it just doesn't appeal to, or it's not accessible to them. And that's really um, key. Yeah, I would just build on that. I mean, the one in five number that Taylor mentioned, there's 10 million black Americans that are getting sick every year because they don't have access to the health information they need. So this is a crisis that, that we really need to sort of have to take notice of as communicators. And the one final point I would add that um, perhaps surprised me the most was within that stat, right? That's one in five of all black Americans, but that number goes up and is highest among uh, one particular group, and that's Gen Z black Americans. And so one in three black Gen Z Americans say that they have gotten sick in the last year or so because they didn't have access to the health information they needed. And this is particularly pertinent to note because here we are talking about health equity and um, desperately trying to change all of these historical um, failings of the healthcare system. And you have the youngest, newest patient population telling us that it's happening all over again. And so it's we're at a like at a crossroads now where we really need to sit up and take notice of, of data like this and develop new ways of working and, and, and strategic approaches to make sure that we stop this now. Another audience uh, I want to call out where this these data are particularly strong is also among black mothers. And we, we recognize based on the, um, you know, the maternal death rates that this is also a key audience that requires uh, information and attention and, and uh, you know, certainly uh, change. Um, but, you know, another factor is Black mothers are certainly uh, a group where they're ignoring health information because they don't feel that it's relevant or that it's inclusive of them. And they're most likely of all subsets to create these chosen circles. And for myself as a Black mother, I, I offer this example of the level of detailed information that's needed and not available. When I was uh, pregnant, I was uh, looking for relevant information on how to navigate that experience. It's new for me. And all I came across was negative stories, disparities, um, and a a, a bunch of negativity. And what I was actually looking for was uh, specific counsel on how to create a tailored birth plan or how to navigate, um, how to help my husband navigate being a black man needing to advocate for um, me in the delivery room where oftentimes there's racism and microaggressions. And, And for that, you know, we almost, we created our own chosen circle, if you will. So I think the level of specificity and the gap in relevant information that's there, uh, you you would only understand that by uh, bringing in the perspective of someone that's in that position and can understand the situation. 
Exactly. That that whole, I mean, one, it's a very powerful insight, Taylor, but it also goes back to what you've been talking about this entire time about having the inputs that actually are able to, to lead you to the understanding. You know, if brands don't have that awareness, then, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to act and make the change that's ultimately going to affect patient outcomes in a positive way. Well, I appreciate you both being on the show and being able to share the insights from this report. I know it's certainly meaningful for our audiences. Again, we're coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but these lessons are still there and they're still so relevant to the, uh, to the activities that are going on today. So Mark, Taylor, thank you again for being on the show. And hopefully if there's any other research from MBooth Health down the line that's really meaningful for the medical marketing community, we'd love to go over it with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jack. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Eli Lilly this week unveiled results on its experimental obesity drug, Redditrutide, which showed efficacy in reducing weight by 24% over 48 weeks. The drug may soon join the ranks of other popular drugs like Ozempic, Wigovi, and Mongero in being a tool to mitigate the obesity epidemic. But the next battle for the makers of these drugs, including Novo Nordisk, may be getting Medicare to cover them when they're used for weight loss. Congress stopped Medicare from covering obesity drugs back in 2003, but some lawmakers in the pharma industry are aiming to revert that rule. Drugs like Ozempic and Wigovi are currently expensive, with Wigovi costing more than $13,000 a year. If Medicare decided to cover these drugs for weight loss, the annual cost of the program could be more than $13 billion, according to Kaiser Family Foundation. But some lawmakers, including Senators Tom Carper, Bill Cassidy, and Brad Wenstrup, have noted that crafting legislation that would allow Medicare coverage is a priority, even as soon as the summer. Nova Nordisk has also recently hired a lobbying firm to work on the issue. This month, Bernie Sanders also announced that he would oppose President Joe Biden's NIH director nominee, Dr. Monica Bertagnoli, until the White House creates a plan to further reduce drug costs. Sanders wants the NIH to introduce something known as the Reasonable Pricing Clause, which requires so-called reasonable prices for drugs developed in partnership with the federal government. While this clause existed in NIH contracts with pharma companies back in 1989, the agency removed it in 1995 following industry pushback. As head of the Senate Help Committee, Sanders holds sway over the Biden administration's ability to officially confirm an NIH director. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MM&M. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And for our next segment, we welcome Jack O'Brien back to tell us more about those three issues trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. Well, the inevitable has finally happened. Diabetes drugs experiencing widespread off-label use for weight loss have found their way to reality TV. And Bravo had Andy Cohen is poking fun at the trend. A few days ago on Instagram, Cohen responded to a TV writer who joked in a post, quote, this summer on Bravo, the real housewives of Ozempic. Cohen wrote in the comment section, quote, it's already airing. As is the case with any joke, there is a kernel of truth in Cohen's comment. A few months ago, Real Housewives of New Jersey star Dolores Catania told Cohen that she had started taking Ozempic to lose weight ahead of the show's reunion taping. Former Real Housewives of New Jersey star Jackie Goldschneider has also been public with her issues with weight loss and eating disorders, adding in a podcast earlier this year that, quote, a lot of people in the housewives world are taking Ozempic. She said, quote, a lot of my friends are in the housewives world, so it's tough for me to come back and suddenly no one's eating when we go out to dinner. 
Now, obviously, we've had a lot of conversations in the past few weeks about Ozempic, Wagovi. Obviously, we saw the promising information this week from Eli Lilly about Reda Trutide, Reda however we're going to say it. That's, that's but um, you know, it's interesting to see it kind of coming to the fore in terms of Real Housewives. I can say here as somebody who watches both Potomac and uh, New Jersey, not surprising at all to see this as somebody that's watched it. You see them airing you know, in April of 2022, and then all of a sudden they come back for the reunion and suddenly they're 20 pounds lighter. But Cohen did raise an interesting point where he's like, what happens when you go off of this short-term weight loss solution and you don't change any of your habits and all that weight comes right back on? Right. I mean, that's that's kind of like the dirty little secret, I think, of these uh, products is that they really have to be used you know, for life uh, because, like you say, there's there's going to be an inevitable rebound if, if they're, they're coming off the drugs after using it for short term weight loss. Uh, but it just reminds me of Jimmy Kimmel's comment uh, at the Oscars, you know, look around the room and I wonder, is Ozempic right for me? Just perfectly encapsulated, you know, the fact that these drugs are, you know, the latest Hollywood weight loss trend. Uh, and no surprise that they've crossed over uh, into sort of the B-list celebrities as well. Yeah, I mean, vanity is the name of the game when it comes to the Housewives universe. And it's it's unfortunate, too, because a lot of these women, too, are not you know, overweight or obese by any sort of stretch, but they're obviously so vain and concerned about how they look that they have to go on Ozempic or Wagovi, or I even saw Charles Barkley had talked about going on Mungero to lose, you know, whatever amount of weight that he was after. So it's interesting to see that it's finally kind of hit its natural resting place, which is the Housewives reality TV universe. Right. And with, as Lesha mentioned, Triple G, findings that up to 24% weight loss, which is even more than uh, Munjaro or trisepatide as it's known uh, chemically, which was already on par with bariatric surgery. It'll just be fascinating to see as these drugs become not only more, you know, part of you know, popular culture, but they've already been compared to Viagra and Prozac, you know, in, in terms of their, you know, becoming cultural touchstones. But they're just, I think eventually, you know, if Medicare covers them as again, unless she was talking about you know, they'll, they'll, and the prices come down, just who's not going to be on them. Exactly. <laughs> so no, it goes from celebrities to, you know, just the, the everyday consumer. So it'll be interesting to see how that all, right. that all plays out in that dynamic. As a fan of the new England Patriots, I never like talking about the New York jets, but this podcast requires that. So I'm going to talk about who their new quarterback is, which is Aaron Rodgers, four-time NFL MVP, and also a speaker at the Psychedelic Science 2023 conference, which was hosted by an advocacy organization. There, he discussed his experience on ayahuasca and how it contributed to his MVP caliber seasons in both 2020 and 2021, as well as what it meant for his brain. Rogers said, quote, I found a deeper self-love. It unlocked that whole world of what I'm really here to do is connect with those guys and to make those bonds and to inspire people. In addition to his comments about psychedelics, Rogers waded into familiar waters by discussing his thoughts on the COVID-19 vaccines, big pharma, and anti-vaccine presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., this came five months after Rogers blamed the pharmaceutical industry for his newfound role as a villain, following his decision not to get vaccinated against COVID-19 during the 2021 season, instead saying he had been, quote, immunized. And one final note, Rogers demanded a trade this offseason to the Jets, which are coincidentally owned by Woody Johnson, the billionaire heir to the Johnson & Johnson formula. So 
the Johnson Johnson fortune, I should say. Yeah. Um, notwithstanding, uh, you know, at the Aaron Rodgers angle in terms of uh, his, his movement. But um, I think it's worth pointing out that the organizers of this conference, the uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, recruited a number of, you know, famous speakers. Um, as the AP outlines, they included one former NHL player, an Olympic silver medalist, figure skater, Sasha Cohen, the rapper and actor Jaden Smith, a couple of comedians, as well as, um, you know, the chair of the Columbia University Psychology Department. But this was all part of a very coordinated public relations strategy to legitimize, uh, help legitimize um, psychedelics as, as uh, and, and their medicinal properties. But it would be reckless to not also recognize that these drugs have, you know, dangerous uh, side effects as well. Um, there are risks to taking psychedelics, and uh, sometimes that can be lost, you know, in a, in a venue like this where you're just kind of can kind of be seen as kind of pushing the science. Yeah, and we were talking about this offline before we started recording, but obviously there is a nuance to this conversation where it's not just the war on drugs and saying there shouldn't be any sort of, you know, liberalization of drug laws across the country, certainly on the federal or state level, but it's also not a free-for-all, too. It's not some sort of libertarian utopia where everyone can just take whatever amount of drugs they want at any time and, you know, deal with the repercussions. There are things that have to be put in place for our protections for consumers, protections for patients, and that hasn't changed yet. I know this is all part of, like you said, this public relations effort and this advocacy push. And Lesha, you were talking about too, the fact that the FDA has even kind of waded into those waters this week in terms of how they're approaching psychedelics. Yeah, the FDA um, just this week actually released the first ever draft guidance for um, psychedelic drug trials. That's going to outline some guidance for trial conduct, data collection, and subject safety um, for researchers who are trying to um, examine, you know, what some of the benefits are for psychedelic treatments for certain conditions like PTSD, anxiety, other mental health issues. This guidance is specific to classic psychedelics. So that's like uh, psilocybin, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Most commonly known as mushrooms, LSD or MDMA. So I don't think ayahuasca is considered in that, but it is the very first, I guess, small step towards some sort of regulatory guidance around this area. So that just happened recently. And who even knows what the timeline of that is? And like you said, it doesn't even cover some of the ones that were brought up at this conference. Right. And that's kind of the and it's a draft guidance. You know, they're yeah. still, you know, working it out. It's a small step in that direction. But it is interesting, too, in terms of maybe what's going to be the lead candidate out of there. I've always seen a lot of push you know, behind psilocybin. And we've seen a couple of states even take that push. But then there's people that are advocates about, you know, what MDMA or what LSD can provide. And obviously Aaron Rodgers thinks that ayahuasca was the reason that he won two MVPs and never made a Super Bowl. But that's beside the point. It's, you know, moving in some sort of direction towards whatever we're going to see in terms of action on either the federal or more on the state right. level. Right. Still, still federally illegal, um, legal in two states, Oregon and Colorado. Um, marijuana, as we discuss, is much further along. Mm -hmm. We've discussed ketamine, uh, which you know can be had through ketamine clinics, and it's FDA approved as an anesthetic, but also has these kind of psych psychedelic properties. So 
it's interesting that the FDA has sort of codified that or made efforts to start to codify that. So um, interesting progress. Yeah. And we're going to go into our final story here, which is a study about TikTok that Lesha wrote up this week for the website. Healthcare providers, including doctors, nurses, and dentists, are some of the most popular professions on the app, according to a recent study from Registered Nursing. TikTokers spent 630 million hours watching videos involving doctors, more than 628 million hours watching teachers, and some 427 million hours watching nurse videos, the study found. Plenty of other healthcare-related professions, including orthodontists, pharmacists, dental hygienists, physician assistants, psychologists, optometrists, pediatricians, physical therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, and dietitians, all made the top 35. In short, people are flocking to TikTok for health information, a notion that's not entirely new. There are, after all, countless famous physician influencers building their personal brands on the platform like Dr. Nock and Dr. Anthony Yoon. Lesha, I'm really just kind of curious what you took away from the study. Obviously, I don't think it's anything that really surprised us, but people love to watch doctors do their thing. Yeah. I mean, I would say probably wasn't too surprising just because, you know, I've been covering viral health videos on TikTok for a while and I've, you know, written stories about the most popular doctor influencers and healthcare related influencers. And it was interesting that this study in particular found that like those Dr. Reacts videos that I think everyone has seen (laughs) across their For You page at some point, you know, where a doctor reacts to a viral video or some kind of health trend going on, those tend to be the most popular videos that people are watching related to doctors. We've obviously seen the plastic surgeon reacts videos as well, things like that. Um, So people are really, I think, flocking to these authoritative voices on the platform, these like doctor influencers who are going to offer their thoughts on a trend or some viral video. But whether that information is misleading or uh, accurate is, I think, a little more up in the air because, you know, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that the majority of health and mental health related videos are misleading on on the platform. So even though these so-called professionals are very popular on the app, you kind of have to do some more digging to actually look into their credentials and if they're legit or not, because there's been a lot of nurse or doctor influencers who turned out to not have like proper credentials, but were claiming to be doctors on the platform. So kind of have to make sure that you're taking those videos with a grain of salt, I would say. And it's interesting that you bring that up too, because I, it's one of those things that you've obviously done a lot of reporting on the fact that there is a lot of misinformation on TikTok. And you would think that a study like this would almost give these healthcare professionals more of a responsibility to be providing credible information and citing their sources. And some of them do, but some of them, again, just right. they see those numbers go up, they see the clicks go up and they're like, well, I can go on there and say whatever mm-hmm. and maybe kind of disregard that, that medical ethics side that they have. Yeah, definitely. And as you pointed out in the story, Lasha, uh, you cited this study from December 2022 that found that 84% of TikTok's mental health videos are misleading. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't necessarily cross-reference it with how many of those are TikToks by purported health professionals. But just goes to your point that uh, a lot of these have to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, and even those you know, purporting to be health professionals uh, may have questionable credentials. Um, I'm also fascinated by the trend of other doctors you know, learning on the channel. When we see these stats, like the other one you, you cited, that Gen Z and millennials are increasingly turning to TikTok for health advice and information. A lot of those uh, millennials are health professionals. You know, this is they grew up with this and they're comfortable not only creating in this medium, I think the 
creator of the year last year, the year before was a physician. Uh, we, we interviewed him on the podcast. And so, you know, they're, they're the ones that are both consuming and, and creating. When we talk about TikTok for medical education, it's just a f- endlessly fascinating topic. So we'll, you know, continue to uh, read your pieces with interest. For sure. And if I can just have one final note on it, too, it's really interesting because I've I had conversations for a magazine story I wrote a while back about the state of Twitter and obviously post Elon Musk buying and everything kind of where physicians and healthcare professionals go because they love Twitter so much. But then you see something like this and it's like they're crushing it on TikTok, too. So maybe if Twitter's not the home anymore, even if it just gets a little too crowded or not to their liking. There's plenty of these where it's doctors, like you said, looking at what their peers are doing, communicating with their peers, communicating with patients, you know, just straight up. So it'll be interesting to see if that kind of continues that migration over towards the app because it still allows them to have that sense of community. Absolutely. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.